My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On today's episode, I talk to Randy, also known as Party of Bards. We talk about designing within the Powered by the Apocalypse space, playing with emotion, diving back into D&D, and making the most of Gen Con. It was a wonderful conversation, and I hope you guys enjoy. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to thank all of my listeners and give you a few ways that you can help support the podcast. The first way is just by listening to the episode, so congratulations, you're already helping me out. You can also interact with the podcast in any way, like, share, all of the usual things that also greatly helps me out, and it's super easy to do. The next way you can help is by interacting with the community, hanging out in the Discord server, playing or running games on the server, or joining in our design contests that we run. The third way you can help is by being interviewed or letting somebody else know that they should get on the show. All you got to do is contact me via Discord or Twitter or wherever, and we'll get some time scheduled to get you in on an episode. If you're still looking for ways to support the show, you can always use one of the affiliate links in the show notes for any of the RPGs or books that are mentioned. They link to either Amazon or DriveThruRPG, and if you make a sale for anything on one of those sites after using a link, then I get a small percentage of the sales. That's a great way to support the show while also getting something for yourself. And finally, the last way is you can support me on Patreon or buy me a coffee. I will have links in the show notes on where to go for that. And that's just a simple monthly donation to help fund future design competitions and equipment purchases and stuff like that. Thank you again to all of my listeners. I feel like we've been growing a really awesome community here around tabletop role-playing games. And with that, let's jump into the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today I have Randy, also known as Party of Bards, here with me. Welcome, Randy. Thank you for having me back on. It's excellent to be back. Yes, if anybody wants to hear the first episode that I did with Randy, that is episode 10, so you can go find that in the archives and listen to it. Uh, But today we're going to talk about uh, a couple of different topics, starting with designing within the PBTA space. So, Randy, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I will state up front, uh, I I would not consider myself uh, an absolute expert, but it is something that I've been working on for the last year and learning a lot about, and I found it to be very interesting. Um, uh, What I would say up front, you know, there is, uh, if anybody is really interested in diving deep into this topic, uh, Vincent Baker, one of the designers of the uh, Power of the Apocalypse system, has this amazing, I think now like eight-part blog series up on the Lumpley Games uh, blog. Um, I bet that Brock will give that into the show notes for us later on. Um, so some of what I'll talk about, you know, is just going to thieve directly from that, but he'll say it better than I. Um, so yeah, uh, this was one of those things I wanted to spin up a new campaign last summer. Uh, you know, my friends and I had, uh, gotten to a point with vaccination and other, uh, safety standards where we felt comfortable kind of coming back together as a group again, uh, wanted to have a new in-person game. And, uh, I had spent, you know, like the first year of the pandemic doing nothing but watching like really comforting, like sci fantasy, young adult focused TV, like She-Ra and Voltron and the Owl House and all that kind of stuff. So that's what was on my brain. So I want to tell that kind of story, something very character focused. Uh, 
I've run a ton of fate it's by far the thing I've run the most. Uh, and I wanted to go like even harder down that like narrative style of game, even more into that player driven style of game, even more into that kind of improv, you know, uh, somewhat hands off low prep GM style of game. Uh, and power of the apocalypse was, you know, seemed like the best fit for all of that. So I decided to try to dive in, learn what I could. Uh, and then, you know, me being me, I had to just make up a game rather than play anything that existed because nothing that existed out there fit exactly what I was hoping. Uh, I feel like that is the curse of being a DM is that everybody has their own tabletop game. That's like in progress, whether or not it'll actually see a table or not, but I I'm guilty as well of always having like a side project that just kind of fiddle with from time to time and powered by the apocalypse the engine is so easy to tweak uh and do whatever you want with which is great yeah i completely agree and and that's kind of what i i found myself you know doing is you know uh you know the vincent kind of describes it more as like a philosophy versus a toolkit uh and i can absolutely see that you know he has those like really fascinating thoughts on like pbta as like this conversation where the real world stuff like dice is like flowing back up into the conversational stuff like the fiction and you know has all these really cool you know graphics and stuff but the truth of it is a lot of people who have created pbta games over the years have just taken the mechanics from apocalypse world and grafted them onto other kinds of fiction and so you know i think it's at least in the popular consciousness may as well be a toolkit at this point uh, and that's kind of what i wanted to go with and then i wanted to try to if i could you know adapt that that fiction I'd been consuming a lot of, uh, sort of like as a genre of, you know, this sort of like hopeful, like teens against the world, learning who you are, you know, lots of magic and sci-fi nonsense crammed in there as well, just for funsies. Uh, and, uh, and it was one of those things, you know, again, mid pandemic, I was reading some article, I think on like Kotaku maybe about the literary genre of hope punk, which is, you know, a lot of those same, ideas distilled you know of even if things are bad they can get better you know people collaborating as a community to build a better world kind of as a as almost like a, a pushback against like super grim dark dire kinds of stuff that maybe wasn't as pleasant to consume with the way the world you know has been recently <laughs> um so you know therefore the game winds up with this name hope punk cosmica uh just to be as on the nose about it as possible when recruiting people and yeah, you know, I tried to be as straightforward as, as I could. I was like, hey, I would like to make sort of like a, a sci fantasy teen, you know, magical kids high school game set amidst, you know, a, a classic, you know, intergalactic war against oppressive evil empire to be determined. Uh, who's down for that? Who's interested? In it? Pulled in the people that, uh, you know, seem like the best fit for that, uh, you know, with a backlog of like 15 more that I wish I could have brought in as well. Um, and, uh, and we started diving into it. And, and one of the first things that, that we kind of arrived at is that we really liked in a lot of those properties is that you would have those classic, like high school movie and TV show character tropes of like the jock and like the nerd and, you know, the, the new kid and, uh, and maybe the troubled background kid. Uh, but then you also had like all those like different like magical archetypes, like the person with fire powers and the person who's like super strong. Um, so we, we ripped off a little bit, uh, from glitter hearts in, uh, that those would be two separate things. Every character could bring to bear. You know, we would have, uh, sort of your character trope playbook, and then we would have your magical powers, uh, playbook as a bond. Uh, and 
I did a lot of dev work on, on sort of the tropey side. And then I kind of worked with each player individually to make up those magical bonds. So we wound up with some pretty, pretty wild and weird stuff that I really love. Uh, we definitely have a character who is a self-described Hugo, witch. uh, you know, powers of, you know, that involve a lot of like knitting needles and quilts and perfectly brewed teas and, uh, comforting vibes. Uh, but then, you know, we also have, uh, this character who is bonded, uh, to some ancient artifact that is a representation of, you know, the eternal cycle of becoming and unbecoming and resurrection. And maybe that character can't die anymore, uh, but we're not going to worry about that too much. It's fine. <laughs> so you almost have like two, two pieces of your puzzle for character creation. Then it sounds like, right. You have the trope. And then the, uh, so, so you basically can pick that independently of the magical power piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which again, you know, I, I think glitter hearts did super well originally. We just wanted to kind of go a little weirder with the power side of it, I think. Um, but I, I really like that notion that, you know, uh, the, the stereotypical, you know, like eighties movie jock might express the struggles that come along with say, uh, uh, a tech kind of character or, or tech power set differently than like a nerdy character necessarily would. Uh, sure. And being, being able to tell those narrative arcs inherent to those character tropes with wildly different powers sounded like it would be a lot of fun for us to mix and match like that. So that's kind of what we went for. Uh, it definitely opens up your possibility space of what characters can be played then too, right? Because you're not always stuck as I'm the nerd, so I'm the tech guy or i'm you know i'm the jock so i'm the strong guy right so you get some more um possibility space there for character you know possible characters have you found any issues with um like balancing or design where um when you are opening up that design space you're also introducing a lot more unknowns as far as you know combinations and and players pulling off kind of weird stunts have you had any issues with that Oh yeah. And, and so that kind of, you know, brings us to the other way that, that I decided to go about this. Uh, you know, you mentioned every GM has got that, you know, giant word doc on their hard drive of the game. That's going to be amazing someday, uh, that maybe doesn't hit the table. So I wanted this to hit the table. I got what felt like a pretty decent baseline. I worked with the individual players to make up playbooks that suited their visions, uh, and kind of tweaked some of my initial ideas around that. And I said, all right, you know, let's just play this thing. Like, let's do the thing and figure it out. Uh, so, you know, we had like a session, what I call like minus one. Uh, we played uh, uh, a sort of a world building game to to construct uh, the space uh, that I actually mentioned a little bit back in, in Ep10. Uh, and then, you know, we had our traditional session zero of, you know, build out the characters, introduce them. And then we dove right in. And, you know, almost immediately as the dice hit the pavement to mix my metaphors. Yeah, we, we had some some struggles and some issues crop up pretty quickly. Uh, one that we hit really early on, um, you know, a lot of PBTA games have some kind of relationship mechanic, um, you know, whether that's, uh, uh, you know, influence and masks, uh, or strings from monster hearts or, uh, or thirsty sword lesbians, you have some kind of mechanic that's tied to how the characters feel about each other. Uh, so we went with connections, uh, and your connections could get stronger and weaker, uh, which, you know, the intent was there to like show they can be positive or negative. You know, each player would kind of write what the connection was, uh, and then different moves in the game could influence it going up or down. But, but one of the early design decisions we made was to have that aid another kind of move, uh, 
reduce the level of a connection, kind of pull some of the points off of it to, to power that boost to your friend, uh, which everybody hated. Cause they're like, this just feels super transactional. Like, like I have to weaken how strong my friendship is with her to give her a bonus. I hate that. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, to your point, we had some characters who, uh, we realized, oh, Hey, your magic powers, uh, that seem pretty balanced on their own. When we combine them with your reluctant hero trope of, uh, I can store up a, a big role to just drop whenever I finally accept my role in this conflict that, you know, being able to have a 12 plus at any time really takes those, those superpowers to another level and lets you be pretty absurdly strong. Uh, so we played out, uh, about a dozen game first season, uh, I called it. Uh, and then we took a break so that we could edit and revise and, you know, talk through all of it together and work on balance, but also work on making sure that it was kind of hitting the, the narrative goals and the storytelling goals. And how many sessions have you done for playtesting? Uh, so we are, you know, in the midst of season two now, episode number question mark. We are, we are not very far into season two. I think we're like two sessions there. So, um, we're theoretically playing twice a month from last summer. So we'll, we'll hopefully hit about 20 total sessions by this summer. Uh, and, uh, the intention is to run this for about three seasons, uh, and, and have, you know, that classic arc of like kids at school to kids in the broader world to kids zipping around the galaxy fighting evil. Um, so, you know, after about two years, the hope is we'll have this in a pretty solid space and, then I can, you know, throw it up on itch.io and get three downloads that are all from my players and, and it's never heard of again. Uh, and all of this, to be to be clear, you know, is is developed in tandem uh, with with one of the players and, and a good friend of mine online uh, and in real life. Uh, they go by Fry, uh, awesome game designer, and has really helped out a lot with this. Uh, they have a lot more experience with PBTA than I do, uh, and so you know, being able to kind of bounce ideas off of them of like. Yeah, I want to have, you know, some of that like episodic TV show type stuff. And they're like, yeah, but if you want to be telling like a more continuous story, maybe back it off like this or, you know, great discussions on, you know, is plus one better or, or rolling with advantage better? Like, do we want to overwhelm people with huge numbers or keep things simple? Uh, those back and forth conversations throughout the whole process have been really huge in, uh, in, in shaping this thing. Uh, you know, just as much as the playtesting has been. Um, when you're going through a session, um, do you find yourself uh, tweaking rules and stuff kind of on the fly or making like new uh, uh, rulings as things are happening? Or do you kind of say, hey, we're going to play it as the rules are. And then when we find issues, we're going to write it down and then come back and, and then tweak those after the session. What is that process like? It was almost exactly the second one. You know, part of it was, this is brand new for a lot of us. It's my first time really seriously running PBTA and getting used to the whole, like, don't roll as a GM, you know, don't heavily prep, you know, any kind of plotting type stuff, you know, have basic scenarios and basic NPCs who have some objectives and maybe a move, but you know, it's a very different style of prep. So it's new to me and new to them because I've just dumped a bunch of rules that Fry and I wrote you know, onto these people, you know, a couple of weeks before the game and said, we'll figure it out as we play. So there were, like I said, those pain points, you know, the transactional connections, uh, or those weird interactions between your playbook and your bond. Uh, but we wanted to be sure, is this just us being uncomfortable because it's new or is this actually not working? So let's play out that first arc and really get a feel for how this thing works now. 
and then we'll rip the guts out and, and do that over again. Um, and I don't know uh, if one or the other is better. Definitely having to play through some of those annoyances for like five or six sessions after we were really sure that they were definitely going to be changed uh, was maybe mildly frustrating. But then on the other hand, it's very relieving now that they're all gone. Yeah, I was trying to think of um, how I would handle that. And I think I would probably lean towards that direction as well, just because if you're basically rewriting rules like at the table, then it's going to feel like the game is almost going to be like too fluid in that you just, the, for like the players, they probably just aren't going to know, like, okay, well, I'm not really sure what's happening. Um, but then like to your point too, if it's continuously a pain point over the course of a couple of sessions, then it probably needs to be changed. If it was just like a weird, uh, you know, edge case or something, maybe it's not as big of a deal. So maybe you don't need to like rush to fix it until you know that, you know, this is a long-term problem for the game. Yeah, I agree. And and we did a lot of stuff, you know, uh, really trying to tie the playbooks back to those mechanics to make sure that the mechanics were always going to drive sort of your personal narrative arc forward. So it's one of those of like, you know, if we change how bonuses work, everybody's playbooks are going to shift as a result of that. If we change how these connections work, you know, each character is going to be affected in large and small ways. You know, like that, that's kind of the idea here is that this is a game primarily about relationships so changing that one mechanic has these huge cascading changes out for everybody so we were definitely really cautious about uh you know just doing it willy-nilly and then throwing right. everybody you know off every single session um but you know some of those things i suspect when season three comes around it's going to change a lot again yeah that makes sense the more time you get on it uh the more it's going to change and hopefully for the better um are the playbooks set up? Just I've only actually played a couple of Powered by the Apocalypse games, but I've read a bunch of them. Are they set up to where each of the character or each of the playbooks has like a bunch of different moves with specific triggers? I'm assuming that's kind of the format for the playbooks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know we have you know uh, uh, we give them you know kind of epic sounding names. You know we have the Preserver, which is that you know. The mom friend uh, might be another name for that trope. You know, the person who's always got the the bag of snacks and bandages and kind of looks out for all the other characters is very supportive and kind. Uh, but the flip side of that is, you know, they can give too much of themselves uh, and sometimes not leave enough in, in the tank to kind of run on because they've supported everyone else so much. So, yeah, that's a character that heavily, you know, flips on a lot of support type moves boosting other people up, uh, clearing conditions off of them whenever they get, you know, kind of emotionally destabilized by what's happening to, them. uh, you know, versus, uh, the divided is that playbook for this genre of fiction, the classic trope of somebody who used to be on the other side, who's joined your side. Uh, and so a lot of their, you know, kind of fictional triggers are tied around whether the people they're interacting with believe in them and trust them, uh, or if they're people who, still have doubts about them and, and maybe aren't as forthright with them. And so it's that struggle of that deep frustration of people not trusting you. But if you let that frustration boil over, you only give them more reasons not to trust you. Uh, so, you know, we have uh, a lot of, you know, hooks into the, the fiction like that, but then also the, you know, they get to do cool stuff. Uh, so, you know, we have the transformed, the person who had something really crazy happen to them and now their whole physical appearance is different. Uh, so, you know, this is a character who can, you know, if they really kind of accept what they've become, uh, they can really 
do some pretty cool stuff and, you know, like, like really lean into their new powers and their new abilities and shape the world around them. That preserver can just be doling out bonuses and make sure that nobody at the table has to fail as long as they're willing to kind of give enough from themselves. It all sounds really cool. I'd be interested to actually read through some of it. Once, uh, once I finish the edits to the actual player packet for season two, I'll, I'll pass it your way. Right now we just have the list of stuff we wanted to change. And that's what we're technically playing out of right now, which maybe is an idea. How are you keeping all of this? Is this just like a Word doc or? Uh, so we have a, a big Google Drive that we all share. Uh, so we have sort of like the core base playbooks and then players have kind of made copies of those to tweak them. And, you know, some of them have made some really cool like Google Sheets style playbooks that are like color coded to their personal, uh, you know, like style and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, then we have like, yeah, the core rules. Uh, session zero, you know, we did uh, sort of like a lines and veils type thing. So we've got that, you know, front and center to keep that uh, type of stuff in mind. Uh, and, you know, we have, if players have written notes or journals or, or letters and stuff, we keep all that. Uh, and then we have a couple of reference sheets, like single sheets that we've printed out that we can have at the table with us whenever somebody doesn't feel like scrolling through a 20 page Google Doc to search <laughs> for something. Awesome. Uh, is there anything else you want to say on that? Or do you want to jump into our next section that we have here? Honestly, I kind of think we have a, a decent segue over to the next one. Yeah. So, yeah. So playing with emotion. Yeah. You know, like I mentioned that, that was a big deal going into this was being able to have characters who had really big feelings. Uh, and I really wanted to kind of pick up, you know, again, some, uh, not all, I'm, I'm very lucky to be in a community of friends who are really amazing role players, but I picked up at least some of the best role players I know. Uh, and I really wanted to, to kind of live in that space. Um, you know, in the previous up, I made a couple of references to this old campaign. A lot of us were a part of called new guard. Uh, you know, that was one of Raleigh tabletop RPGs, semi-organized play campaigns. Uh, those are our large multi-gm many player games that we run on a seasonal base throughout the year uh, and new guard was the classic like uh teen titans slash you know young x-men style or young mutant style game of like teenagers at the superhero high school learning how to be heroic uh and i'm not saying that many people in the player base maybe design characters to kind of work through some lingering traumas from high school but that wasn't uncommon. Uh, but the flip side is, is that it had a ton of buy-in. You know, I think, I think when you're able to see a little bit of yourself in your character, it's always a little easier to get into their headspace. It's not sure. to say that's the only way to do it, but it makes it a lot easier. Uh, so we really wanted to kind of recapture some of those feelings of people being super invested, uh, just really embodying those characters. Uh, uh, so, you know, we've done a few things over the course of the campaign to really hammer that home. During that, you know, mid-season break when we talked about stuff, uh, one of the other players brought to the table this uh, really cool system uh, from another game they've played. I feel terrible. I cannot fly for me or remember it, but if I if I pick it up, we'll toss it uh, into, the, into the description notes. Uh, but it was all about uh, what do your characters want from each other that they can't get? And then the other person replies of why they can't give the other character what they want. So it's building those connections and those bonds, but also building in a little bit of kind of default conflict, a little bit of tension, a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, back and forth uh, to help drive some of that role play. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm actually in a campaign, a D&D campaign. This is probably the first one that I've had where the party has had um, 
really a kind of a deep conflict between a couple. There's like three, three of us that are kind of adventurers. And then there are two that ended up stealing some stuff from us. And so we kind of like captured them and now they're kind of tagging along the, I'm not exactly sure why yet. We haven't really figured out why we're keeping them around, but um, it's, it's been very interesting and very fun to have those like conflicts of some of the party members don't really like each other. Um, and I know one of the, one of the players was like, as a, as a player, I love this as a character. I hate this, <laughs> you know? Um, but it's, it's just been really cool because it's a different, uh, a different experience for me. And having those conflicts has, has really changed it changes the the party dynamics i think in an interesting way and there's there's a little bit more tension from session to session even when there's not like you know things that are threatening us or whatever right because there's just some some social ten- tension there uh so baking that in even just a little bit is kind of a neat way to to get some of that maybe a little bit more mild than what our party is dealing with but um it's always neat to have a little bit more social uh tension than just everybody is together in a group you know, working towards the same goal. So kind of neat. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, you know, I, I like the way you're describing it as well. You know, it's, um, even, even if you are still maybe working toward the same goal, you might all be going toward it for different reasons. And I, I really wanted to like, you know, move away from that classic, like bad trove of intraparty conflict of like the rogue steals everybody's magic items every night. Like that's, you know, to me, that's just, you know, a toxic, table presence and not actually like interesting conflict. It's just somebody who is being unpleasant actively. Um, you know, whereas this is more about like, yeah, these are teenagers and they have, you know, big feelings. And sometimes they say dumb stuff and hurt people's feelings. And then, you know, don't want to admit fault and they grow as a person when they learn to type of stuff. Uh, so I was able to, to pull it up. It's, um, a game called Hill Folk built on the drama system. Uh, and one of its, you know, character creation elements, uh, is this, you know, wants and needs um and we kind of adapted that in and pulled that in and then our rebuilt connection system kind of flows around that so uh the mechanics of the game now actively push your characters to have again not necessarily like a like a fight but there's a difference in expectations maybe it's a hope that you have for that other person that they don't want to fulfill maybe it's something you're afraid is true about them that you're not sure about maybe it's a lie that you're telling them that you don't want them to know about uh, or maybe it's just you're really upset with them. And whatever that conflict point is, uh, anytime one of the moves in the game pushes your characters together, if you're aiding them, if you're figuring them out, if you're helping them through something, it's continually ticking forward that new renovated connection system. And whenever you get to that, you know, turning point, you know, the scene just shifts. The camera turns to the two of you and you have to talk it out. And you don't have to resolve it. You could just yell and come away equally unhappy, at which point we'll turn back the clock and, and try again later. Uh, but to make sure that that stuff doesn't just simmer forever, because I, you know, that's not something we want to, so we don't want to see a character who was mean and the other characters are hurt. And then we never get to resolve it. There's no payoff from that. It's just, just upsetting. So we wanted to make sure there was always some movement toward that payoff, uh, for these, uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we're liking how that's going. It's driving the plotting forward in a lot of cases. NPCs can get pulled into it too. Uh, we've definitely got, uh, you know, at least a few, will they, won't they crush scenarios going on that are going to have to get answered sooner or later. I may have to build in a school dance. I don't know. <laughs> the, the way you're describing it does really remind me of like the superhero 
like cartoons and TV shows and stuff. And just those, uh, those scenes where you focus on like two people and their relationship, even if it's just for a couple of minutes, I mean, they do, they have that tension build up and then something happens and then they have to talk about it or they, ha- they do something right. Or there's a fight or, or whatever, but I can see, I can kind of see, you know, from how you're talking about it, that it is pushing that design towards the tropes that you want to right? antenna to reinforcing genre. Yes. That's the word. <laughs> Thank you. And, you know, it's not to pretend that, you know, Fry and I have arrived at like a unique formulation there. Um, I mean, honestly, I'm ripping heavily off of masks and new generation, which is like, to me, the like ultimate dramatic teen superheroes having emotions at each other game. Um, and you know, everything from their influence system, which is people who have influence over your like teenage character who doesn't know who they are yet can shift your stats up and down like mid game. Uh, there's all those moves of like whenever you talk to somebody after a big fight about how you feel, if they approve of you, this mechanic fires. If they kind of don't approve of what you've done or kind of negative response to you, this mechanic fires. And and the whole game is kind of built around that notion of of those little emotional conflicts and those little pushes toward emotional growth. And whatever you do in masks, the system is there to kind of support you and make sure that as long as you're playing into that genre cool stuff happens in the game. And we, we definitely want to achieve something like that in this one. Like I said, if, if you have that blow up moment and you can't resolve it, the clock ticks back and, and you're going to find yourself there again. If you have a blow up moment and at least one person walks away happy, you're going to get to take forward some kind of resource or bonus. If both parties actually are pleased with how it went, uh, you get an even bigger bonus because we want to encourage, you know, that friendship, but you're not disadvantaged if, you wind up walking straight into another conflict or question. Uh, that's just another opportunity to get XP and plus ones, right? But it is mechanically enforced. There, there is a incentive there for players to to play out those scenes and to come to a resolution. Yeah, exactly. And I think you see this in a lot of you know what I consider like the best PBTA games built into the playbooks themselves. There's often one or more central character conflicts or challenges. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like I think thirsty sword lesbians has a lot of great content around there. Like, you know, the beast feels like they're not a part of society. Uh, and so you kind of get to through your moves and through your characters, like sort of special resources and stuff, you get to kind of move in a direction of either maybe becoming more accepted by society or feeling comfortable being an existing outside of it. Uh, and you know, whenever you take advances, you know, wherever you earn XP, it drives that narrative forward. Whenever you use your moves, it reinforces that narrative. Um, this is something I think some people don't love about PPTA. They're like, well, I don't like the fact that the games seem to want you to play a certain kind of story. And, and absolutely it would not be wise to like grab masks and try to run like a really grim, dark supernatural horror game about adults who all get along easily. Like it just wouldn't work for that. But what it does, it does really, really well. Yeah, you're going from a more generic system into something that's a lot more specific in the the tone um, and the style of game that you're trying to play. Um, so I agree with that. It, it's really picking the right tool for the job and not... Um, if you want to play something more generic, then play something more generic or find the... or write the PBTA game that hits that genre that you want to play, right? Yeah, yeah. And 
maybe it's the case that the genre is not the only thing you can build a PBGTA game around, but I think most of the ones that I'm really fond of seem to choose that as their like central organizing element. And it works really well. Like I can't wait for Passion de las Passiones to come out uh, from uh, Brandon Leon Gambetta. It's the game of being in a, you know, classic like Latin American, like telenovela, uh, you know, soap opera show. And, you know, uh, uh, it's just all, you know, the crazy over the top drama and betrayals and lies. And, you know, if you're betraying somebody really good, take a bonus on this role, you know, like it, it just leans into that genre and does well with it. Um, the flip side of it, and you know, I, I kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, you know, with our session zero and stuff is I think if you're going to dive into a game like this, that's really about conflict and emotions and, you know, young characters kind of going through the ringer sometimes, you really want to make sure that your game is also safe to play. So, you know, I like that you mentioned, you know, on your, at your table, a player outright said, I'm loving this, but my character hates it. Like to me, that's kind of the ideal scenario. Yeah. And, and it was kind of funny when that situation came up too, because two of the players, uh, that one and one of the other ones were basically just slinging insults back and forth, uh, at each other. Um, pretty rapid fire for almost, you know, probably a couple minutes. So, um, I think just as a note to the GM, it was, it was like, okay, they're, they're getting along as players, um, and having fun with it, but the characters are not, it was really fun to listen to, but then, um, also good to know that it wasn't because they were actually upset or anything either, because the, the role-playing was pretty high, uh, at that point, which was great, uh, made for a good, a good session. Um, what other kind of safety tools and stuff do you have? Or that are you talking about in your game? Um, so, you know, we've, we've drawn, you know, in the various games I run and play, we've drawn a lot from the RPG safety toolkit, which is an awesome resource and is kept up to date and has some really cool stuff in it. You know, I think the basic stuff of like an X card, you know, at this point is, is virtually just a baseline assumption. Anything I'm going to run, if the senior in, if what's happening right now is making somebody uncomfortable, you can always toss that S card and we'll just stop the scene right there. Uh, and you know, frequently you know there's there's more sophisticated versions you know that have maybe like a uh, let's go through it slowly you know there's like the rewind card in some variations of this of like let's step back and redo it uh or you know fade to black on this of like i'm okay with what's happened but i kind of don't want to talk about it anymore so you've got some systems that, that get a little bit more or less specific with it um but to me the big things that you always want to have available are something to stop play when somebody's not feeling okay and something that encourages you to check in and make sure that people are cool with what's happening in the game. Um, so, you know, we had a sort of a lines and veils and desires thing up front. So what are some things that you just absolutely never want to see in this kind of campaign? Um, and again, there's excellent resources online of people who have drawn up really great lists of sort of the typical stuff there, you know, whether it's like you really hate like really intense blood and gore, or you really hate bugs or, or, you know, whatever the case may be, there's, there's some good stuff there, you know, versus veils, which is more of a, I don't mind it existing in the game. As long as we just don't focus on it a lot. Can we fade it to black? Can we, you know, talk about it in general terms and not really dig into the nitty gritty details of exactly what that assassin is doing with his knife and my guts. Um, uh, but you know, that also desires, like what's the stuff that you want to see in the game? Do you want to see those kinds of emotional conflicts? Um, so, you know, we have a game where, you know, there are a lot of emotional conflicts, but we don't necessarily want to have a lot of like gaslighting just, you know, again, 
world being what it is, that's a particular kind of stress that some of us were like, we all agree that's bad. We don't need to have a villain in the game who's gaslighting our characters to prove it. It's just uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think things like that are great. Um, you know, if you're using roll 20, uh, and you make a campaign, you can import into the game, an RPG safety toolkit right away in roll 20. And I'm sure other VTTs probably have some similar packages you can grab, but you know, that one has things like an X card and like a fast forward button and stuff. And that's just a deck of cards. The players can deal out onto the play surface, uh, just to make it really clear, uh, you know, and easy for the GM to know, um, when I've run things on discord, I can say, Hey, you know, if you want to shoot me a DM because you don't want to publicly state to everyone, you're uncomfortable, shoot me a DM on discord. I've got it up on a, on a monitor and I'll monitor and I'll look for that. Uh, you know, some of it's going to be just talking to your players and seeing what works best for them. You know, some folks are really okay. Just raising their hand and being like, I think this is really weird and we should stop. And other people prefer like a, let's take a break every hour and just check in kind of thing. Sure. I didn't realize that uh, Roll20 had a safety toolkit on it, um, but that's always something that, at least in the last couple of games that we've done, that gets brought up just kind of at the session zero and then really haven't had to talk much about it, which is which is great. Um, but it is nice that they have some built-in stuff for VTTs since that's the way that a lot of people are playing nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, certainly. I, I I love the fact that I have a little like Ziploc baggie full of like X cards and and you know line cards and stuff uh, in my backpack. But having the digital option is great. I think in Roll Twenty, it's uh, whenever you create the campaign, you can like import uh, uh, content into the game, and that's just a piece of free content that's available to every GM on the on the platform. So you can tick a button and it'll show up there for. You. I will try to find a link to that and include that in the show notes. And I mean, you know. The, the overall goal is to make sure everybody is having a good time together, that we're telling stories that people enjoy telling. And if that involves characters fighting, like you said, as long as everybody at the table is cool with that and nobody is actually getting upset or uncomfortable, then, uh, you know, that's awesome. For my part, I find conflict terrifying. Uh, and if I myself am in a conflict, I get incredibly stressed out. But somehow... For whatever reason, in my brain, it's totally okay to throw these other people's poor characters into the mixer of Magic Kid High School drama, and that's fine. That's happening to other people. Do you want to jump into our next uh, section, diving back into D&D? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's, you know, toss out all this, like, goofy story game nonsense. Let's talk about real dice and mechanics, right? Um, and, and thank you for, for bringing that up. Uh, so, you know... I have joined on, I initially intended to be sort of a mercenary GM, uh, for some friends who were running a, a D and D campaign, uh, here in RTR. It's the second season of our big D and D SOP. It's in this cool custom world. You know, the folks in season one made, um, it may surprise everybody to learn that out of all the systems we've offered an SOP for the D and D one is by far the most popular. Uh, and they had a really overwhelming player demand and needed a little bit of extra support to run some more tables. Uh, so, you know, I had some changes on my schedule. I had some free time. It's been, you know, half a decade since I was running a D20 game. And I said, maybe I am finally ready to run some D&D again. Maybe I can accept that kind of stress back. And so I made the offer. They said that sounded great. Uh, I said, all right, cool. Well, the season starts in two months. And I said, cool. I have to learn how to run 5e. <laughs> um, 
And mercifully, there's a lot of great content. Uh, for instance, there's several wonderful interviews here on the uh, Dungeon Masters Toolkit podcast uh, that go into some great ideas and tips there. Um, but, you know, YouTube is full of people who will tell you all about how to run 5e, some of whom are very shouty and enthusiastic, and some of whom are very chill and uh, laid back, which is a little bit more my speed. Shout out, uh, Bob World Builder. Uh, I always enjoy your soothing, dulcet tones calmly explaining how to make weapons cooler um and you know i guess there's also some books that that wizards of the coast sells that you can read but you know that's that's like the lame way to run something learn how to learn right uh much better to just watch a bunch of youtube videos and then worry it <laughs> there definitely is a lot of content out for running D. there is and and you know it's it's the biggest game system of the world right like it was obviously everybody wants to play it thanks to critical role and stranger things and all that stuff uh, everybody's got a lot of ideas about how to play it. And I'm coming from a place where, you know, growing up, I played some D and D here and there, and I ran a couple of like bad one shots in three and four E. Uh, and then I swapped over to Pathfinder, you know, for my first big long-term home game, which, you know, is D and D 3.51, right? It's very heavily based off of that and an evolution of those rules. Uh, and five E has some similarities, but there's a lot of differences. You know, there's little things of like, Right, okay, attacks for opportunity are slightly different, and flanking is slightly different. But it also simplifies a lot of things, which I'm a fan of, because uh, what I've what I've dealt with over the years, what I've kind of affectionately described as, like, post-Pathfinder stress disorder. I don't know if you find this as a, as a GM for games, but, you know, somewhere, like, around the three-year mark of, like, digging through tomes of monsters and, like, applying archetypes and stuff to the monsters to make them party-appropriate difficulty and making sure the magic weapons weren't going to overbalance one person's build, and that this character had enough gold to use their crafting feats that they'd spent a bunch of resources to acquire, and then making sure that at any given point, you know, no nobody was accidentally doubling bonuses that weren't allowed to double, but were doubling the bonuses that were allowed to double. I just got burnt out. It's a lot. There's a lot to keep track of. Um, I think that's probably one of my... Uh, complaints of running just D and D in general is that there's just a lot of uh, nitty gritty things that you kind of have to balance. Um, especially when, like you said, as it comes to monsters and stuff, um, it can be the the line between an easy encounter and a total party kill can be somewhat uh, thin <laughs> sometimes. Um, and I would rather just uh, be like, okay, I'm going to have these monsters and this stuff, and I would like to just run it and not have to do as much prep as maybe is needed for D&D games. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, you know, in watching all that content and reading about it, I guess there's like two or three different systems for building encounters that wizards has released at this point, because people found the first one too confusing or not accurate for their game. And I mean, that stuff is hard. You know, you were talking previously about like unexpected interactions between characters, you know, 5e, maybe not as overboard as Pathfinder 1e got, but you know, yeah, by the time you're fifth or sixth level and you toss out a few buffs and then a few character abilities and a couple of feats, the interactions can get wild. And this party of fifth level characters is wildly more or less capable of handling this kind of monster than that party of fifth level characters. It's a, it's a lot to track. The flip side is there's a lot of cool little like knobs to tweak and buttons to push, right? Like there's all those awesome builds you can monkey around with and, you know, cool abilities and, and, you know, legendary actions and layer actions and 
you know, uh, combos of monsters or, you know, go steal Matt Coville's, you know, action oriented monster design techniques. There's a lot of little things to play around with as a GM that I have to admit I had really missed as well. The, and I think having, having maybe a, a wider array of mechanics and stuff as well can lead to, uh, sometimes easier designing things because you just have more to go off of uh, in terms of like examples and stuff like that. Um, thinking of just, you know, spells in D&D, there are so many spells. So if you wanted to make a spell or a monster ability or something, you can almost just look at your list of spells and then, you know, kind of know what level things are and then tweak it or add it to an item or give it to a monster as needed, which can be a lot of fun. Um, as a player that's one of the things that always that i always think is really neat about like the genesis system and the um like the edge of the empire the star wars fantasy flight system because um even like leveling up and stuff is just it's just a bunch of little bonuses and abilities that you can purchase kind of in any order um and then like weapon customization vehicle customization there's just a ton of stuff that you can do which is is really fun to dig into um and is also overwhelming as a game master so (laughs) definitely systems that benefit heavily from i expect you to know how to run your character type gming I'm, i'm not here to operate your 11th level wizard for you you should really know what your spells do um yes i agree with that and it whenever I run those systems, I tend to be the one that's like answering all of the questions on how things work. And I think that's where my overload comes in. Uh, because yeah, trying to keep all of that straight uh, is difficult. Whereas if I play like Dungeon World or something, like I pretty much know all of the rules and most of the moves that the playbooks have. So uh, it's a lot quicker for me to troubleshoot issues or questions than it is in uh, D&D or any of those other you know deeply customizable games. Yeah, same deal, you know, like I run a ton of fate and at the end of the day like I can figure out 17 different ways to make sure that I'm applying the correct plus 2 to this situation, but it's fate, so I'm probably applying a plus 2 to the situation at the end of the day. That's that's it's you know, kind of core bonus mechanic. Um yeah, yeah. It's it's the same deal though, you know, with wanting to write and run a PBTA game is to stretch those GM muscles a little bit and diving back into 5e you know, GMing it after playing it a lot, uh, was same deal. I was like, all right, like, I think there is cool stuff to be gleaned, you know, from encounter design and having, you know, I think 4E did that really well. The notion of like the minions who are there to like plink away at you and soak up hits and the controller who makes sure the players can't move around too much. And, you know, the brute who's going to dish out a ton of damage or the solo who has enough actions to keep up with a four player party and not get overwhelmed in the initiative count uh and you know 5e has some little things like that uh you know again like matt colville's you know new kickstarter for flea uh mortals uh his new monster book has a bunch more stuff like that uh and and i think that the lessons i'm learning here will be beneficial you know in those other systems as well like i I think having a broader base of experience can only really be helpful um and being able to make things cooler and you know fate's never going to do the stuff that D does exactly it tells different kinds of stories it runs a different kind of game and has a different kind of feel uh but you know there's some pretty cool traps that have been thought of over you know the 
40 or 50 odd year history of D&D, I can probably thieve a few of those from an old adventure module and convert them and do some neat stuff that. Yeah, I've always said that I think that one of the best ways to be a better DM, I guess, or even a, a player, but more so a DM, is to just read and or play in other game systems because you just learn so much about what uh, other game systems are good at and then maybe what uh, the, your, you know, your favorite game systems might be really good at specific things and you maybe just didn't know that and you might find some blind spots that they have because not there's no game that's perfect for everything so um and being able to pull those pieces into your campaign to tweak it the way you like it is always good but you won't know that it exists unless you go out and and read it or play it or hear about it i fundamentally agree you know uh, last time we talked a little bit about like fail forward designs which is obviously a really key piece of you know pbta and fate alike you know uh a role that, you know, just a binary pass-fail can lead to some boring or problematic outcomes. You know, if players need clue X to proceed and they fail the investigate check to find it, um, what is your session going to do now? Uh, so I love games that have, like, success tiers or fail forward or something that'll drag you forward, kind of regardless of the result of your role. Uh, and I think applying things like that into D&D is only going to make the games smoother and cooler. Uh, you know, it's not, it doesn't just have to be, like, Oh yeah, you you know crit failed an attack roll, or you know you got a, a one or an ability check, which I know isn't technically a critical, but we all love to flavor it because it's funny that way. You know, you can have more than one fail, pass, and twenty. You can you can you know flavor things up a little bit more. You can add some options or some branching paths to how the session might go. You can give people a little bit of extra info on a higher roll or offer them a, a devil's bargain if they're not quite to the uh, number they need. Uh, I love stuff like that in other games. And, you know, I'm not going to do it on every roll in a D&D game. Obviously, D&D has its balance and its, uh, its intended way to play. But having that stuff in my back pocket is awesome for a particular scene. Yeah, I think, especially in D&D, I think that people or DMs try to do that um subconsciously um i think that knowing that those are options that you can give to your players uh is a good it's a good way just to be aware of it because um before playing like dungeon world i wouldn't have really known to do some of those things with like the partial uh successes but in, like you said in a dnd game if you do something like an investigation check and then they have something that's you know plot critical for them to find and they don't see it then maybe it just kind of stalls your game out um whereas sometimes i know one of the the biggest tips that i've seen is having a failure be a success that they didn't want um is a good way to uh, force the narrative forward sometimes when you you know maybe you shouldn't have had them roll or something uh like they fail to you know, pick the lock on the door or something. And uh, instead of it being locked, the door uh, clicks open easily, weirdly easily. And they open the door and there's a, there's a bunch of guards looking at you or something. Right. You know, so it's, it's still a failure. It's also still a success, but it's, it, the situation got worse. So, um, and that stuff is all, you know, mechanic independent. You can just kind of work that in, uh, regardless of what system you're using, though with like PBTA and uh, Forged in the Dark games as well, it's kind of built into the dice rolling mechanics, so it's a little bit 
more top of mind than it is in a D and D game. Yeah, I agree. Although, you know, one, you know, in, in, in working on hope on Cosmica and talking to my friends about it, you know, one person pointed out that they really don't care for that element in PBTA because it, it feels to him like it's very player oppositional. Um, like, like the system is almost wanting you to fail in order to drive the mechanics. Uh, and part of that I realized was in how I was portraying some of those mixed successes and, uh, you know, blunders and stuff. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for letting the characters be awesome, uh, and not undercutting their success on that mixed success present a new problem, maybe even a related problem. Uh, but don't kind of like punish them for doing the cool thing every single time. Uh, and, and that's just, that's a tweak in my brain I had to make, you know, whenever I'm having to improv on the spot of what an appropriate downside to a, a mixed success is, you know, just playing off of exactly what they were trying to do is the easy place for my brain to go. Uh, it's a little bit harder for me to remember to do things like do a cutscene to like an enemy plotting something dark in the distance or put some, you know, while you are successfully achieving your task, the enemy uses your distraction to endanger some innocence, you know, those kinds of GM moves in those systems, uh, let the player have their win and feel cool, uh, while still providing that next dramatic step like you're talking about. I think one of the nice things about a lot of, uh, PPTA games, or at least, um, dungeon world, a lot of moves have some of that built in where it will give the player the choice of what bad thing happens. Um, and that's nice to offload that from, you know, that decision from you. Uh, and I think a lot of times in Dungeon World, it'll be like, they give you like two options and then, or, you know, the GM will give you something too. So if they don't want it, either of the two options that they have, they can always toss it back to you. But um, a lot of times uh, they they don't want to take the risk of tossing it back to you. So they'll pick what they want. <laughs> yeah, very agreed on Um yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh it's one of those little curiosities of design that's been a lot of fun to to play around with that stuff. Uh, and I think, like I said, it's it's teaching me more. Uh, and so, in some ways, you know, I'm I'm kind of glad that I've got this PBTA uh, thought process running simultaneously with this like learning five E thought process. I think it's going to provide some really cool fertile ground for original stuff uh, in kind of both worlds. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, to back to your point. GMs and DMs out there, play and read more systems. It, it'll only make you better at what you do. And I think it's probably a good time to jump into your last section that we have here, which is making the most of Gen Con. Yeah, if I've got a third RPG track spinning in my brain right now, it's Gen Con. Uh, a few friends and I are going to, uh, you know, chance it and go back out in person this year. Uh, we're a group that's been going, you know, together for a few years now. So I'll state up front, kind of like the PBTA thing. I am not a uh, uh, all-seeing, all-knowing expert, but I'd like to, as a relatively recent convertee to large RPG cons, share the little bits of things I've learned to try to make it fun for folks. Uh, so actually, first question to you, have you ever gotten to go out to a, a, a RPG con of any kind? I haven't. I would like to, but I have not, so... Uh, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes, right? You know, had a friend who was just a Gary con, which seems tiny. I've got some friends every year who do dragon con, which is huge in a very different way. And so far as just one hotel just crammed, you know, to the rafters with, with people in awesome cosplay. And, you know, then Gen Con is, you know, the best four days in gaming, they say, right? So, uh, there's a ton of gaming available and what's worked well for us is, 
kind of a weird amount of planning to try to maximize the fun that we extract from every second of our Gen Con experience. So weird thought, a bunch of RPG nerds are min maxing their nerdy activity. Huh? That's great. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's, it's one of those things of like, uh, uh you can min max so many different parts of it. Um, you know, there's a hotel lottery. There aren't enough hotel rooms in downtown Indianapolis to hold everybody who wants to come. Uh, so each person who buys a ticket gets a slot in the hotel lottery, randomly assigned time on hotel day that they can log into the hotel system and book a room. Earlier you log in, uh, the better rooms are available. If everybody buys their own ticket and you're growing in a, going in a group of eight people, that's eight chances to roll high on the lottery. Downside is you also need enough hotel space for eight people. Uh, so there's some like logistical breakpoints of like about every four people, give or take, uh, is probably a good uh, place to to aim for to have that good interplay between best shots at getting a hotel room versus not needing too many beds to sleep on. Uh, so you know we min maxed the heck out of that. Uh, we're min maxing our schedules every single day. Uh, you know, with Gen Con, there's a, a similar, not quite lottery, but there's the event, uh, signups go live day. They'll have the event catalog available and that's actually coming up uh, in about a month in May. Um, and you know, there's events, RPG tables, obviously, of course, thousands of those, but they have workshops on making chain mail and they have seminars on game design and they have, you know, cosplay live action chess battles and they have LARPs and, uh, you know, the Gen Con dance and they have, you know, movie showings and all that stuff. And all of it's, you know, put into this giant schedule that basically runs from like about 8 AM to about midnight every day. Uh, so you can put into a wish list all the events you want to get into. And whenever the event system goes live, you kind of hit the go button on your wish list and it'll sign you up for as many of those as there are openings for. So it's another one of those, uh, click the button as fast as you can things. So we are all definitely like stacking our wish list order to ensure that if the first five things we want fail out, we've still got four more things in line behind them to go into those same time slots. So I am definitely doing like 8 a.m. to midnight schedules of like three or four games with like 30 minute gaps for food intermittently spaced throughout. Uh, because I figure if I'm, you know, spending a hundred and plus bucks on this uh, ticket, and I'm driving out to Indianapolis and cramming myself into a hotel room with a bunch of other nerds, I want to extract as much gaming as possible from that. Uh, so, you know, mid-max your schedule while you're there. You're already there. You might as well get into some events. Right. And, you know, uh, uh, of course, again, that, that's that's what works best for us. There's other folks who like want to have that four-hour space to just wander the enormous vendor hall. Uh, I'm sure somebody in comments is going to sound off four hours is not nearly enough to wander the vendor hall. So, you know, uh, uh, you know, leave yourself the gaps where you want to have them. Certainly. Uh, another little, uh, nice bit of, uh, min maxing Gen Con advice I've got, uh, they will give you a free Gen Con ticket. If you run, uh, I want to say it's a, uh, uh, 70 player hours worth of event, I think is the number can't remember off the top of my head. I apologize. Uh, but what I'll tell you is this works out to, if you run, um, three RPG sessions that run four hours for six players each, you will hit the required number of player hours you know, in, you know, time that people are spending at your, your event, uh, to get your free Gen Con pass, because about every event is billed at like two bucks an hour paid to Gen Con. So, you know, 
if you are earning them enough money with stuff that you run, you get a free pass to the whole con. Running three four-hour events in a four-day weekend is not a ton of time. Uh, so, you know, if you've got that cool one-shot that you ran for your buddies back home, or you really are fond of this uh, adventure thing that you bought in a Kickstarter that you've never gotten to run, submit it to Gen Con and get your free ticket. If, you know, you're lucky enough to be able to run giant events like LARPs, you can even get free hotel rooms from Gen Con uh, just for running stuff. For That's awesome. I wasn't aware of that. And yeah, if you're if you're running three sessions, it's not like you need to have three different things because you're going to be running for different people every time. So you can just run the same one shot three times. And honestly, four hours isn't... I mean, if you're making characters too at the beginning quick, then four hours isn't really that long of a session. Yeah. You know, if it takes people a half an hour, Dep- depends on what you're running. If you're running D&D, it might take a little longer to make characters. But uh, a lot of the PBTA games, you can have characters up and running in 10, 20 minutes with the rule explanations. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the best game of masks I've played was uh, run by a friend, uh, Ivan, uh, Gen Con. And, you know, we built out characters, developed our, you know, entire high school class and, like, the mechanics of our prom in the first, like, half hour and then had an awesome session about, you know, fighting the bad guys so we can make it back in time for prom, you know, the back three hours of the game. It was great. Um, you know, I'll also just state, you know, for the record, uh, it's important to note, uh, drink water at Gen Con so you don't pass out and die. Uh, bring, you know, good deodorant so that you don't make everybody else really sad. Uh, and uh, uh, you're probably going to want to bring some money because that vendor hall is really kind of extraordinary. <laughs> uh, but if you are min-maxing like I have done, and cramming as many people into the most gas-efficient car that your friend group has, do remember that there is a physical limitation on the number of board games you as a group can purchase and physically (laughs) bring home with you. Or have somebody in the group who's really good at Tetris. Bring some some boxes for shipping all your stuff back. (laughs) There are vendors of the hall who will absolutely offer to ship stuff to your house for you. I suppose Uh, you could almost just place an order with them and then they just throw it in their system and ship it out. I'm thinking of, uh, I think it's an old Monty Cook game. Well, not that old, but I think it's called like Invisible Suns or something like that. And at one point they had like the super premiere edition of it. It was like this giant black cube filled with all these different playbooks and decks and dice. And then this giant like bronze hand that would sit in the center of the table. Uh, and they were like, yeah, if you are actually spending the $400 to buy this ridiculous box set, we'll just ship it to your house. Like, don't, don't try to yeah. take this on a plane home with you. <laughs> I think the TSA is not going to like what they see inside. <laughs> yeah, I need to check this giant black box, please. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, what I obviously say is spend a little bit of time ahead of the con thinking about what you want to do, what kinds of things you enjoy. Look through that giant event catalog, which is super searchable. You can narrow things down super easily by time or game system or event type. Uh, and just, you know, fill your schedule up with stuff that sounds cool to you. And then the last little thing I would say on it is this is an opportunity to experience the real width and breadth of gaming out there. Like, yeah, you know, Baldman games and Paizo are going to run, you know, 3000 sessions of 5e and, and Pathfinder 2e, but you can probably play that at home. Like take some time and go play some weird indie game or play test uh, a new game from a developer you like and get to like meet them and shake their hand or go to a film festival for something you've never experienced before, you know, go to a seminar and learn how to make cool chain mail as a table prop for your next game. Like there are 
at least in past years, 60,000 awesome nerds there who have all brought their individual expertise and ideas and opinions. Go out there and like broaden your nerdy mind. There is so much cool stuff at Gen Con. Well, now I want to plan another vacation uh, so that I can go to Gen Con. So thanks for that. You're welcome. <laughs> Always glad to help. Awesome. Yeah. Well, lots of good tips here on this episode. Um, I think it's probably a good time to wrap it up. Uh, Randy, where can we find you? Ah, uh, yeah. So check me out on Twitter at uh, Party of Bards. Uh, as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, the hope is to eventually spin up uh, some video content under the Learned RPG uh, banner. Uh, but that's been kicked back and delayed a little bit. It turns out designing and GMing multiple campaigns simultaneously consumes a lot of time on top of like theoretically having a full-time job I get paid for. Uh, but yeah, keep an eye out on Twitter uh, for more news on that front. And uh, hopefully we'll see some more cool stuff coming out from me. In the interim, there's a ton of cool stuff right here on Dungeon Masters to look at. Gosh, how many episodes are you up to at this point? This is 44. I'm up on the big 5-0. That's a lot of hours of awesome content, folks. So, you know, click here. Well, Randy, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It was a blast to have you on again. Likewise, it was a great time being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server. 